0: Glad you could join us today on RK Ministries podcast, where each week we engage culture with biblical truth by sharing a message of truth and hope from a biblical perspective. Like the podcast, share the podcast, subscribe to the podcast, find us on Facebook and Twitter, and hope that you enjoy today as you join us on this episode of RK Ministries podcast. Well, greetings and salutations again from the great state of Alabama. thought I'd pop on this afternoon and get uh, Theological Thursday in. And uh, just remember, as always, we will put this up on our podcast, RK Ministries, and you can find that wherever podcasts are available, and I encourage you to go find that podcast, Uh, like it, share it, subscribe to it. And we'll put it up on YouTube, put it up on Rumble. And again, encourage you to find me on all those platforms. The more likes we get, the more subscribes and shares we get. It helps out uh, the data points so we can maybe expand the audience that way. And it'll uh, eventually allow us to where we'll be able to go live on those platforms as well especially rumble. I think I can already do YouTube live, but rumble. But anyway, that's more equipment down the road, or at least more knowledge on my point on how to do all this simultaneously. But today I thought we were going to, I thought we would talk about, uh, it's a topic that we, I have visited before. It's been a, a little bit, but I thought it was appropriate again. At least my mind was on it because uh, it's on uh, the reliability of the New Testament in particular and the reason my mind was on it because we are in our uh last sermon uh in the book of Romans uh, this Sunday Lord willing we will finish up the book of Romans at Friendship Baptist Church in Tallahassee, Alabama and in preparation for this uh sermon one of the things that I noticed as we're reading through this chapter that when you get to verse number 23 you look for verse number 24 in the ESV Bible And it is not there, and so we got to deal with that because not everybody in the congregation has an ESV Bible, and uh, a lot of them may have another modern version, the NIV, and things like that, where it will either be missing in the sense you go from 23 to 25, or it will be in brackets or italics or some way indicating that they have. There's a variant there. Now, what the ESV does is they they omit verse 24 and they put a uh, a number number a, a number at the end of verse 23 that will point you down to a reference at the bottom of the page that says, "Hey, this this is why this verse is not here in this passage." And then there's also another um, debate or variant that relates to the last few verses of this, uh, verses 25 and 27 uh, as well. Uh, Whereas the ESV doesn't look like it's in brackets in the ESV. Some translations might have verses 25 through 27 in brackets as well. I think there's better evidence, at least based on the scholars that I've read, relating to verses 25 through 27 as being original to Uh, chapter 16 in Romans, uh, as opposed to verse 24, and really verse 24 doesn't the absence of verse 24 in, in, in Romans chapter 6 does not change one out of the doctrine that we find in the book of Romans or in Romans chapter, excuse me, I said Romans 6 or Romans 16. Because what would be in verse 24, if you have a King James Version or a New King James Version or a modern translation that leaves it in there and just puts it in brackets or notates that there is a variant related to this verse is the same thing we read in verse 20 in uh Romans 16 the, at least the latter part of verse 20 is the grace of our lord jesus christ be with you uh in, in verse 24 if it's in the king james or in the new king james or in a modern translation it will read something to that effect the grace of our lord jesus christ be with you all and so as you can see the idea of that benediction is not missing from chapter 16 uh, it's just in It's just not there in most modern translations. And the reason behind it is, before we get into this whole idea of of the reliability of Scripture, is the reason behind this is that most of the earliest and best manuscripts, and I know people who are King James only don't like to hear that kind of language, but the earliest (laughs) and best manuscripts uh, do not contain verse 24. And there is other internal evidence where verse 24 the the language the the verbiage in verse 24 kind of floated around a little bit to try to find a home in some manuscripts that do contain it so most scholars believe that that was an addition later on in in this chapter and therefore most of your modern translations are going to leave that out or at least notate that there's a variant in there and we'll talk about the idea of variance and, and what that means here in just in just a moment <clears throat> so with that said whenever we're reading this chapter or sunday morning then inevitably somebody's going to be there with the uh a translation that has this verse in it And when I read verse 23 and it goes straight to verse 25, uh, they're going to think something's wrong. That either I missed uh, verse 24 or in worst case that, hey, something's wrong with his Bible that he's using up there. So we need to explain those things so that people will understand. And a lot of people take passages like this. This is just one. A lot of people take passages like this and try to make an argument as to why it is that the modern translations are inferior year uh to the king james in particular maybe the new king james if you hold that but even those who are king james only uh they 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 don't even like the new king james which is based upon primarily the same um uh, same uh, underlying text so we're gonna have to deal with that and i'll have to let them know why that's absent in the esv and most modern translations and uh again share with them just what i shared with you it doesn't change one iota and the neat thing is and again i'll probably mention this again it's in my notes but i'll probably mention it again the neat thing about the new testament and new testament uh uh, criticism and using the term new testament criticism is not Criticizing the New Testament, it is critically analyzing the documents that we have uh, that underlie the New Testament in, and then ultimately coming up with what is believed to be the closest to the original. But even with that said, really what happens with the New Testament, yeah, they, there's a little bit of, you know, debate over very few passages of Scripture. Uh, there are a lot of variants, we'll talk about them in a moment, but uh, there's nothing thrown away as it relates to the new testament data not one iota of data is thrown away it is all there if you go to uh nestle i don't know what maybe 28 29 i forget what's, what's the most current one now that um, is one of the primary uh, new testament uh bibles greek new testament bibles that is used today in scholarship if you go to that even if you come to verse 24 like this right here and they may not necessarily have verse 24 in their greek text in the main text but they will most definitely have a footnote or a note pointing down to data at the bottom where that passage will be and they will tell you every place that that passage is and what manuscripts that it is in and so it's not that things are missing it's just that uh we we have all of the evidence and you're able we are able today especially with the technology that we have we are able to you can go online right now and you can find all the data that is available from the new testament and you can read it nothing is hidden it is all there and you can you can make your own mind up as to uh, whether it should be there or not, best based on the level of uh, scholar, uh, scholarship, I guess, or knowledge that you have in that subject. And with that said, I, I am no scholar by any stretch of the imagination <clears throat> on this subject, although I have listened to a lot of people, a lot of debates, and uh, read material on these uh, the issue of New Testament reliability. And so I I have some knowledge on it, and I think, at least in my opinion, sufficient knowledge to satisfy my um, uh, willingness to understand that the New Testament is reliable. And so with that said, by way of introduction, I would say that, again, I'm not going to be able to convince anybody that the New Testament is reliable or that you can believe the new, that you would believe. I can't convince you to believe the content that's in the New Testament, and that's not what I'm trying to do. It's like Charles Haddon Spurgeon said, hey, defending the New Testament, I'd just soon defend the line. Just let it loose, uh, unchain it and let it loose, and it will defend itself. And so through the years, the New Testament has defended itself under great scrutiny. Uh, As a matter of fact, Paul even reminds us that, it's impossible for those who have not been regenerate redeemed been born again to understand the truths of god's word because they're spiritually discerned first corinthians two fourteen, he says the natural person does not accept the things of of the spirit of god for they are folly to him and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned so uh, I, I have no you know, intention to think that I can cause somebody to accept what is written in the New Testament. Ultimately, that's the work of God in your life to bring you to that place. But I do think that we, uh, you know, because a lot of times people say, hey, you know, Christians, you, you believe things on blind faith. Well, that couldn't be further from from the truth. Uh, while it is a matter of faith, ultimately, that we believe in Christ and we've, re- we've uh, bowed our knee to him as Savior and Lord of our life, and we, uh, by faith, believe uh, that the Lord has revealed himself to us, and we see evidence of that revelation in, in uh, general revelation in the creation around us, and we see evidence of that in, in special revelation in the word that is set before us in what we call the Old and New Testament as, as believers, the Bible and there is this aversion today And again, not to chase this rabbit, but there's this aversion today to the Bible and that kind of language using the Bible says, and one of the biggest proponents of that right now, this minimalistic idea is uh, uh, Andy Stanley, who unhitches from the Old Testament and now wants to unhitch from the New Testament. And and his argument is ultimately, hey, uh, we know what we know because Matthew said it, because Mark said it, not because the Bible said it, or we know what we know because Jesus said it. Well, how do we know? what we know that Mark said or Matthew said or Jesus said we know it because we have what we have termed the Bible so the Bible is uh, important to us in that respect. It reveals to us what Jesus said. It reveals to us what Mark said because they wrote it down and God preserved it. And he allowed it to, to, to come down through the centuries to us. And so let, let's speak about the reality, the reliability of the new Testament because critics today, that that's one of the places that critics today, uh, try to, um, hinder Christian or, uh, I guess, battle Christianity or, or debunk Christianity is through the um, reliability of the New Testament. And Probably one of the greatest proponents of that is Bart Ehrman, uh, who was once a Christian but now is an apostate uh, in, in the sense that he once believed and now he does not believe anymore. And he's one of the most, uh, he's one of the, the, the or has been in, in, the, in the past, maybe not so much right now, but has been in the past one of the loudest voices against the reliability of the New Testament. And there's always question about where, where do we get our canon of scripture? How do we know that these 27 books that are in the New Testament are in fact the uh, 27 books that God intended for us? And if you remember, it was uh, Dan Brown, I think it was. Who wrote the the um, the the books? I can't even think of the name of the book right now. Um, Da Vinci Code. You wrote the the book Da Vinci Code, and in that, you know, there were there were allegations made that hey, all these things were uh, were made up by uh, Constantine, or they manipulated the scripture, and uh, what you have is not something that came down from God. It's what men wanted you to have, as as they manipulated it and rewrote it the way that they wanted. And so, hopefully, this will help you understand that because we as believers need to understand where we got the Bible. that's one thing to believe hey yes we we believe it from from uh you know the table condensed to the maps all right we, we believe it uh, by by faith but we ought to understand the history of it and how we how we came to have these books as the bible and i think that strengthens our faith because there is a history about how we got the words that we call of uh, the new testament Uh, today because in paul's day you know what his bible quote bible was it was the old testament in particular it was the it was the greek septuagint the, the 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 greek translation of the the hebrew uh old testament and that was the bible that he used in that day so he used god's word but he used the word that god had given to him he was living out and writing the new testament in his lifetime so how do we know that we have what god intended for us to have how did we get the canon of scripture i guess is is another question and again that's where people say well it was because the church decided these were what books there were you had you know um, several councils that met that decided what books were going to be in uh, the new testament and in part that is true there were some councils uh, that met Um, that validated that the 27 books we hold today as scripture in the new testament are in fact those that god gave to us as scripture and so they validated they didn't come up with that and i'll show you why they didn't come up with that they just really validated what god had already uh, been doing in the life of the church and what believers had already been uh, accepting and so uh, you had the council of laodicea in 363 Uh, by that point in time that council accepted every single book that we have except for the book of revelation and then uh in in Hippo council of Hippo in 393 and then the council of Carthage in 397 both of those councils affirmed the 27 books that we understand to be the new testament today but it didn't start there it wasn't when they sat down and they said hey these are the books of the new testament and we've talked about this before i mean it was early into Well, I say late in the first century, I put it that way, late in the first century, about 95 AD, Clement of Rome, I believe it was, had already in a canon, if you will, that he had deemed uh, scripture or books that had been revealed or inspired by God. He had eight books already in his, uh, in his canon, if you will. And then Ignatius had seven books in AD 115. So at least in those few years, there were already eight of these books or at least eight books that people were beginning to accept as being inspired by God and as scripture. And then Polycarp, when he comes along in in, in 108, he had 15 books that he looked at as scripture then Irenaeus in uh 81 his canon included uh 21 books of the scripture of scriptures and then by the time you get to the middle uh the middle of the, the uh, second century you've got uh Hippolytus with 22 books of the 27 that we now hold as scripture then uh, you also had late in the first century should put him earlier uh and again i may not pronounce his name right uh, muratian m-u-r-a-t-i-o-n he had he had 22 uh, again of the 27 books that we hold as scripture and then along that same Time period origin already had all 27 books that we hold as scripture in what he considered to be the canon the new testament these were inspired books by god and so for someone to say that it was when these councils gathered that they they determined what the new testament bible's books of the Bible were going to be is is a little bit disingenuous. Is not actually true. They just verified what the church has already been saying are the twenty five or twenty seven books of the New Testament, and they just codified that in these councils, and it became universally accepted in that sense. And so you you already had even earlier in this though. If you think about it, in Second Peter chapter three verse sixteen. Peter is already acknowledging or at least elevating Paul's writings, his letters on par with Old Testament scripture. So even Peter acknowledged that the things that were coming out in particular of Paul were already on par with New Testament scripture. And then first Timothy, uh, and it's Paul writing in first Timothy five eighteen. he's already saying that the things that Jesus said, those words that Jesus said that were recorded for us ultimately in the gospels and in some the epistles uh, was scripture so the uh, early church was already uh, determining or accepting these books as inspired by God and sent to us uh, through the person of the Holy Spirit so in that sense there was this kind of organic you know process by which the Bible as we understand it the New Testament came into existence as the church began to accept these letters as inspired by god so when you get down to the actual councils who affirmed this not just them but what christians throughout the the, the first century middle of the second century were already looking at in these books that were being written what what was it that caused them to validate these as scripture well there, there's at least four Uh, categories uh, that they are basically four statements that kind of guided their understanding of what caused a letter epistle book whatever you want to define it as a as scripture and and one was that the author it, it either had to have apostolic authorship or it was written by a person who was in close relationship with an apostle. And so, you know, you have Luke and you have Mark and you have uh, Luke and Mark, anyway, there. And then the only one that comes to my mind that, you know, people might have had a problem with in the past would have been Hebrews, because we really don't know who the author of Hebrews is. There are different opinions on who the author of Hebrews is. My personal opinion, at one time, I believe Paul wrote Hebrews um, and he just didn't sign it, but probably if you examine the the greek that's used in hebrews acts and luke you'll find that they are all three of those books have more uh refined um uh, greek is is it's, it's, uh, more than the normal everyday Koine kind of greek it's a little bit elevated from that And so my personal opinion on that, just as an aside, is I I think that Luke actually wrote the book of Hebrews and he was writing what Paul was preaching. Now, again, I I can't give you that definitively. That's just my personal uh, opinion, just because of the language and the style and also because of the theology that's laid out in in the book of luke so they look for apostolic uh uh, authorship or at least a person who was closely related to or in in you know with an apostle then secondly is uh it was the book accepted by the larger body of christ and that's where we see what was happening early on in the first century the body of Christ was already beginning to accept certain books as inspired by God and scripture. So were these books that they had this apostolic apostles uh, authorship or closely related person to the apostle, were they being accepted by the church at large uh, as scripture? And then uh, thirdly was, did, did the book contain consistency? Did these books contain, con- contain consistent doctrine? All right. In, in orthodoxy, in other words, they, they lined up together on what orthodox Christianity was, and if those books fell into these three categories so far, the church would understand them to be scripture. And then did did the book, finally number four, did the book bear evidence of higher moral and spiritual values that would reflect the work of the Holy Spirit? So did it uh, did it appear that these works were in fact inspired by God? And so those are the four primary uh, areas or or ideas that the church looked at whenever they in particular these councils whenever they did codify the 27 books we have but the church had already been acknowledging this by accepting them early early on so in my opinion the the just the transmission of these books the transmission of scripture is one way to validate that we have what it, what we ought to have in the new testament these 27 books and an aside to that on the transmission of the scripture what was going on you know they didn't have a they didn't have a printing press they didn't have a xerox machine they didn't have a computer where they can copy and paste and print it out at the house uh obviously they were writing they were hand copying these books and so Uh, whenever a letter would go to one church a lot of times those letters were meant to travel to different churches and be read and so you'd have at one church the letter went to and then go to another church to be read and they would want a copy of that letter Uh, and so they would write or copy out that letter by hand and so it it was an organic transmission of scripture and not only that it began to be immediately uh, translated into other languages as well so Uh, You know, an uh, an aside argument that people have is, hey, you know, these people manipulated and put what they wanted in the Bible. Well, it's almost impossible thing to do. Well, it's an impossible thing to do because the way the organic way in which the scripture was transmitted copied by hands from various people some skilled and some unskilled all over the place uh, you would have to have knowledge of every single copy that was ever made and be able to gather every single one of those copies from every uh, every point in history and every point on the globe that it was written in order to be able to get them together get rid of all of them and make it say what you wanted it to say and that that was just an impossible thing by how the new testament was transmitted and so that leads us to this idea of really getting into the the concept of what we have as evidence and then leading into this idea of of variance and so the biggest idea of evidence of scripture as it relates to in compare i I should say as it is compared to other documents of history is this the overwhelming amount of evidence that we have uh in the um uh, in the in the greek in the manuscript evidence i'll get it out there in a minute and what most people believe is there is in the neighborhood of around 5800 or so either manuscripts copies of manuscripts or fragments of manuscripts that we have as it relates to the new testament and some of them are as small as a credit card or a postcard and some of them are as large as a full uh you know manuscript that has all the books of uh the bible and so there's just this overwhelming amount of information and data that we have uh today as it relates to the new testament that we can compare and contrast with one another and and again i'll probably get into this at the back side of these notes but even today with computer technology uh, we are able to do and i say we the christian community scholars are able to do Uh, What could never have been done in in history before is they can take all of this data and they can compile all of this data in computer programs and they can analyze every bit of this data and at a speed and at a level of intricacy that no human being could have ever done. And that's leading to what is called today, I think it's CBGM, uh, coherent based uh manuscript i got it written down somewhere i should have not tried to get Oh, coherence based genealogical method is what it's called and basically they're they're kind to trying to use the technology we have today to build for lack of a better way to put it, and, and hopefully I'm not misrepresenting what's going on uh, in a very layman's way, because that's the only way I can understand it, is they're building a family tree uh, of sorts, of, of, of parents of manuscripts, right? This manuscript is the parent of that manuscript. In other words, this manuscript was copied from that manuscript, and they're able to analyze uh, these manuscripts in such a way that they can kind of determine which manuscript may have been copied from another manuscript, and they can... You know, determine uh, what are the best readings based on these kinds of things. So, anyway, there'll be more of that to come uh, in the future, and it may it may shake a few things up a little bit. But uh, I I think, at least in my mind, what I want to do, and what I'm I, I hope to happen, is for us to get to. What was it that Paul wrote? What was it that Peter wrote? What was it that Mark wrote, right, to the best of our ability? I know we'll probably never know completely until we see the Lord face to face, but we need to do everything we can to make sure we we refine uh, what we understand about Scripture to the point that we are very convinced that we have what uh, was written. And, and I think we do just because of what I said earlier, that what we have is all of the evidence. Nothing is thrown out. We have every bit of it. And in all of this evidence is exactly what was written in the original documents that were written. So we got over 5,800 fragments or full manuscripts or copies of manuscripts, not to mention if you add in all the different uh, translations, Latin, Syriac, Coptic, Arabic, you got in the neighborhood of 20,000 different copies uh, of those trans those of the scripture translated into other languages so you see it it would be impossible for somebody to gather all of that data uh, especially as it was being unfolded in throughout history before printing press and all those kinds of things came out uh, in this organic fashion to gather all that up and to get rid of every bit of the evidence and then remanufacture something um, to say what they wanted it to say there are some scholars who have done the math and say that that all this evidence uh, says 2.6 million pages of text from these 5,800 Greek uh, manuscripts and translations. So all of those documents we have 2.6 million pages of data uh, are evidence of the, of the New Testament. Um, and I'm trying to think of the scholar's name is Dan. Oh man. If somebody has ever studied textual criticism, you're probably shouting his name uh, to uh, me right now. Not Dan Brown; he's the one who wrote the Da Vinci Code. Uh, It'll come to me maybe later, but uh, he he is—he's one of the premier Greek scholars of our day, and he's got an organization where primarily what they do is they go around and find. Or visit these places where all of these manuscripts or copies or pieces of manuscript are. And they take photos of them, real high quality digital photos. And they they put them online so that everybody can go and see them. Man, that was unheard of uh in times past we'll talk in a moment about De- desiderius erasmus he, he only had like a half a dozen maybe maybe up to 10 manuscripts that he was able to look at um and he 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 would have probably given an arm and a leg to have the kind of data and evidence that we have uh today and it's available to anyone who wants to look at it today is nothing that is being hidden now here's 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 the contrast and this is where people say you know you can't believe the the, the new testament right is is the new testament is is you can't validate what was said in the new testament well if that's true then you can't validate anything that was said in antiquity because just what we've mentioned 5800 fragments to full copies or full manuscripts of the new testament twenty thousand uh copies of the Bible translated in other languages, 2.6 million pages of data, one mile high. That's where I was getting at with with my buddy Dan, that I can't remember his last name, but he says if you stacked all of this up, it would be one mile high. The amount of data that we have as it relates to the Bible. Here is the best the best work of antiquity in comparison to the attestation of the bible and that's homer's iliad homer's iliad guess how many copies we have 643 and guess how many years removed from the original writing the iliad was The copies that we have, the earliest one is 400 years removed from the original writing of the Iliad. And so if you look at that and you say, hey, you cannot, you cannot believe the Bible because it, it, there's no way to verify what it says then you cannot believe anything that is said in antiquity and there's no one who would argue about what was I mean there may be some critics who who there are some textual critics who analyze these 643 copies of the Iliad but most people accept what we understand about that the 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 writing of the Iliad as what was written we don't argue uh, about that but and then we want to write about argue about the bible which has far more attestation than any than the best the best representative from secular history so don't come and say you we can't be sure we have what was written in the first century we absolutely can be sure that we have what was written in the first century and so not only that, if you go if you just leave all of that alone, set, set aside all of, all of the 5,800 copies of Greek, set aside the 20,000 copies of the, the translations and all these other languages, and you just take the church fathers. If you take the church fathers, the church fathers have over one million quotes among them of the New Testament one million quotes you could take the quotes that the church fathers have of the new testament and you could reconstruct almost all if not all of the new testament that we have today so it'd be impossible again for someone to say that we cannot know that we have what was written in the new testament the and and so I don't think there's any question, as it relates to the data, that we can be assured that we have what we need to have in the New Testament. Now, that leads to this idea of variance, and people get in a big uproar. And again, Bart Ehrman, Ehrman is one of the one of the biggest ones who's written several books on a he's written scholarly but he, he, a lot of his books have been um a more popular level and it's the popular level books that have impacted a lot of people as it relates to their understanding and uh, trust of the new testament scriptures and he's one of the ones that harps on this issue of the variants and one of his books is entitled misquoting jesus um and so what about these variants well, here, here's the issue with, with, here's the here's the deal with variance. If we took a piece of paper and, and we wrote a letter, if I wrote a letter and I had 100, 200 people sitting in a room and I put that letter over here to the first person and I had that person copy that letter. And then that person took the copy of the letter that the first person did and passed it to the the Third person and said you copy the letter, and the third person copied the letter from the second person and so forth and so on till you got to the end of the room. When you got to the very end and you compiled all those copies, you're gonna find a whole heap of variants in those just because of human nature. And that's how the old the New Testament was transmitted. Was through hand copying, some by professional scribes and some by lay people who just wanted a copy of the book for their church or maybe for them for themselves. And so here's, here's one of the things that people say that, hey, there are more variants in the New Testament, Bart Ehrman, there's more variants in the New Testament than, than there are words in the New Testament. And he is absolutely right. There are approximately uh, right around 138,000 words in the New Testament, and there are at least 400 variants in the New Testament. So you can almost say four times as many variants as there are words in the New Testament. Now, that's one variant per every three words. So if you look at it that way and you say, well, wow, how can we know that we have what, is in, what, it, what was written in the New Testament if we have so many variants uh, in the New Testament? Well, here's what 99% of the variants are. of all the variants that we find, all of these 400,000 variants, 99% are spelling errors, word order, or homoteloton. Spelling errors in that there was not necessarily a standardized spelling of the Koine Greek in that day. And so different people may spell things a little bit differently. Or in copying, they may not have copied the right letter in a word uh, when they copied it. So spelling errors. And I don't know who is among us today who doesn't have spelling errors, right? Sometimes even spell check, uh, we have spell check and everything. Sometimes spell check don't even know what I'm trying to spell. Uh, And so I have to go to Google and say, hey, can you help me understand what I'm trying to spell? So it's obvious that there can be spelling errors, but those don't change anything theologically about what is written in the bible and those are are somewhat easy to identify and then word order and again in in the greek word order word order is not like it is in the english in the english we have a pretty set word order by which we structure a sentence in the greek it's it's an inflected language so verbs have particular kinds of endings nouns have particular kinds of endings plurals uh, and, you know, and so forth and so on. And so you could put, in theory, you could put them anywhere in the sentence, and you could understand that sentence by um, deconstructing it, if you will, <laughs> uh, based on the case endings of each word, understanding what verbs are, and adjectives, and you know, nouns, and adverbs, and all those kinds of things. You could, you could, you could make sense of that sentence in Greek just based on what. Uh, the inflected meaning of the word so again word order doesn't necessarily cause a big problem in uh in our theological understanding of the text and then the third one is homotelyton and homotelyton almost same uh teleton uh, you know telesta tel- telos uh end and so it's same kind of ending So like in the English, it would be probably for us, T-I-O-N or I-N-G. Those are common endings. So what would happen when a scribe was copying down uh, his uh, portion of the scripture, uh, he would copy down a sentence and at the end of that sentence or the end of that line uh he had a word that ended in say for instance english t-i-o-n well then he would write that down and he looks back up and he picks up the next he picks up the next word he sees after t-i-o-n and begins to write again and what has happened is he skipped a line and there was another word in the sentence below that ended in the same thing and so he missed a whole line because he he saw that word that ended in t-o-n which was was not the original word that he ended on so in that way uh, there were there are a lot of variants uh, with that and those are easy to they, those are easy to identify as you begin to compare manuscripts and in scripture and so if you take into 99 percent are spelling errors word word order errors or homoteluton, that only leaves one percent of variance which is approximately two thousand variants and and then that that goes from one per every three word to one per every three page uh, pages of the New Testament. So there's a there's a lot of variants, but the majority of them have no bearing on what the meaning of scripture is nor does it have any bearing on whether we have what we what was written originally or not it is just human era you know we have spectacles uh we have good lighting and so in our day you know we, we could we could copy these things and we'd still have variants and we'd still have errors. and just think about it you got some monk in a dungeon a uh, little old monastery with a candle uh, at best trying to write out these scripture and maybe you know when you get to a page he he was drinking some tea or whatever it was and he knocked it over and spilled it on the page and smudged it on the page and so now you what, what do you do All Right, and you get the next person that's there and they they try to copy and they got a big smudge on the page so you can see how these kind of errors would take place and again 400,000 but really there's only 2,000 probably that are of sig- significant and so there's not really of those two thousand there they're not really any that have any ultimate theological bearing on scripture and and there's some very famous and popular ones that we have to deal with in scripture, but again it does not it does not negate the fact that we have in all this evidence what was written in the first century and yes we have to examine all the evidence we have to try to find which which uh, version of these writings in these various manuscripts was actually the earliest and most original um or earliest and the original um, probably two famous ones maybe you've heard maybe not but if you look in your Bible you, even in modern translation it's probably going to be there because uh, it, it is it is so well known and it's been and it's been passed down through the years uh, that most modern translators will leave it in and they'll just put it in brackets and that's the that's the longer ending of mark mark chapter 16 verses 9 through 20. Most of the biblical evidence, I'd say most, you, you still have a debate. There's probably more evidence for Mark 16 being in uh, in Mark than the second one I'm going to mention, which is the pricope adultery, uh, but there's still uh, overwhelming evidence, most scholars believe, um, that the longer ending of Mark was something that was added to uh, Mark chapter 16 and was not necessarily original uh, to the text. But, you know, that's the part in there about uh, you know, basically uh playing with snakes and not getting harmed and all the drinking poison, that kind of stuff. So that's probably one of the longest ones. And then uh second to it, or at least equal to it, and probably more more shocking to people is what is called the Pricope adultery, the one we called an adultery in John, John chapter seven, verses fifty three through eight eleven um dan wallace hey his name finally came back this man boy it took him a long time to find that sticky note in my head but he was hunting he was hunting feverishly while i was talking about these things um dan wallace he's the one that uh, most of that data i gave you earlier about the manuscripts uh and the evidence of the manuscripts came from him dan wallace uh dan wallace says that the precope adultery is his favorite story that's not in the bible and so the the evidence behind that, and again, I don't have all the data in front of me, but this is a passage of scripture that was throughout history looking for a place to land. And so, in several different manuscripts, it sometimes it's in John, sometimes it's in other places in John, sometimes it's not even in John; it's in other books of the New Testament. And so, again, the 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 overwhelming evidence for this uh variant or at least this ending is that it probably was not original to the gospel of john and you know maybe one day we'll we'll do a deep dive on these two and we can we can we can give all the evidence one way or the other and then ultimately you can make your uh, decision but i think that we need to address these kinds of things one because if we ever endeavor to go out into the world which we ought to as believers right go into the world and share our faith then we ought to at least have some understanding of how we come to have the new testament that we have because there's where a lot of people are going to attack christianity and the validity of it validity of it is whether or not we can we can trust the scripture that we have and again as we started i'm not going to be able to convince anybody to um believe the Bible. That's that's a Holy Spirit thing. God won't have to do that because it's spiritually discerned. Um but it's not I'm not about right now trying to convince you to believe it or accept it as the word of God. I'm just trying to help you understand that if you want to be consistent in your critique of books of antiquity, then you have to measure them equally in the sense of consistently And if you're going to say the Iliad is, uh, we we can trust it and that it is what was written, then there's no way you can say you can't trust that we have what was written. Now, whether you believe what was written or not and what it says and what it requires is another thing, but you'll be hard hard pressed to come to the conclusion that you cannot um, believe the attestation of the historical data related to God's word. And so every Christian ought to stand on that and say, hey, You know, if you believe the Iliad, you can believe, you can believe that you have, we have what was written by the apostles in the first century, whether you believe it or not. All right. Uh, said that, uh, So I'll make this statement again, just so you can understand, because a lot of people get all upset about variants. And when, you know, I read Romans 16, verse 24 is going to be missing in some uh, folks Bible or either they're going to see verse 24 and my Bible's not going to have it. So we get all upset and it causes us to, to have problems and fears. And here's, here's the deal with, with the Bible. The Bible is not, it's not that things are taken out or manipulated, as we've already said, all the evidence is there, nothing is thrown away and Someone has put it this way: It's like if you have a thousand piece puzzle box, all right, and you open that thousand piece puzzle box to put that puzzle together, and you find out that not you don't have a thousand pieces you got a you got eleven hundred pieces. Well that's how the Bible, that's how the evidence of the Bible is or the data for the Bible is. It's not that we have a thousand pieces and that's all we have and we're taking uh we're we're discarding those thousand. No. We got all of it. We got a hundred we got we got a <coughs> we got eleven hundred pieces. We got more than what was written. And we're just haggling over that more, right? And which ones ought to be there and which ones ought not be. But we don't throw anything out. All of the evidence is there. Go look at any uh, critical text of the New Testament in the Greek and you'll see that the evidence is there. And they'll tell you if this verse is left out in the main text, there'll be a note that says, hey, this is why we did this. Here's all the evidence for and against uh, it. And you can make your own decision. So that leads us finally to the... <clears throat> to uh, translations of the new testament and in particular to king james only because i grew up in the church king james only right is it the king james was the only bible that you uh you could read it was the uh, bible for english-speaking people and that is true right because it's not the bible for spanish-speaking people because they speak spanish but you know there was this idea that all the other modern translations were are, are uh, of satan right and they're taking things out of the bible and they're different than the king james and uh gail ripplinger i think wrote wrote a book and she talks about you know just bashing all the modern translations but anyway uh so i thought we'd talk end, end up talking just a little bit about the uh, about the the King James. I love the King James. Most of the, most of the scripture that I know and have memorized came from the King James because that's what I grew up on. That's what I grew up reading. That's what I grew up studying. That's what I cut my theological teeth on. Hours on end cross-referencing, chasing uh, cross-references through the King James Version, the Thompson Chain Reference Bible. Uh, was the Bible that I had as a young man, a teenager, and I was studying God's word and chasing all these theological truths through, through his word from the King James. So that's when I quote a passage, almost always from the King James, because that's how I learned it. But just so we can understand, what what is the distinction between modern translations and the King James? Hey, you can take you can take the King James and modern translation, and you can win somebody to Jesus Christ with either one of them, because there is no doctrinal difference in them. Now, the King James onlyist will say yes, there is, because the new versions take out. well we've already addressed that they don't take them out uh we just they just get refined to what would been what would have been closest to the original and the other data is left there for you to look at and read but there's not one doctrinal uh not one orthodox christian doctrine that is changed by modern translations as a matter of fact i think modern translations help us to get more accurately to what was actually written but anyways uh, another topic for another day so King, the King James Bible primarily, and this is probably not completely accurate what I'm about to say, but it's the only way I know how to say it, and then i got to explain it. It's primarily underlain by what, is, uh, by what is called the Textus Receptus. And again, the Textus Receptus has its own uh, historical journey, uh, and we'll talk a little bit about that. We don't we'll have time to talk about, uh, in depth about it. But primarily, Texas receptus. But the King James, even in their introduction, I was reading some some of that introduction today. The introduction to the reader on the King James, the original King James uh, Bible, sixteen eleven. And by the way, most people who are King James onlyist uh, wouldn't be able to read a sixteen eleven Bible. Most of us couldn't read a sixteen eleven King James Bible just because of the archaic way the language was uh, spelled and, and and said, and some of the words are different. But anyway. Uh, even in their introduction it says that they had no intention of creating necessarily something completely new that and they followed a lot of bibles and translations that were already in existence but they did follow the greek new testaments that had been produced uh, in that day for them and so it, it wasn't that they went out and dug up all the manuscripts they could find and come up with this text they followed as, as as if they didn't necessarily go out to reinvent the wheel they just went to maybe make a little bit better wheel and so uh, the textus receptus back to this uh desiderius erasmus was the first person in the 1500s uh to uh 1516 looks like on my notes 1516 he came out with his first edition of the greek new testament and Desiderius Erasmus depends on who you listen to at a minimum six maybe manuscripts greek manuscripts at a maximum maybe 10 maybe 12 Uh, manuscripts most people believe somewhere between six and eight manuscripts is all that he had at his disposal to come up with what he produced as his greek new testament and so if you compare that to today we have 5800 of them that we can compare and uh, with one another to come up with what we believe to be, uh, the closest thing to the original Greek new Testament. They Desiderius Erasmus again would have given his left arm probably to have what we have today. He used what he had and guess what he did? Cause one of the big things about King James only ism is this whole idea of textual criticism, right? Well, we don't need to do textual criticism. We need this preserved text is perfect. We don't need to do anything with it. Well, de- guess what Desiderius? erasmus did whenever he came up with the with what is what came to be known as the textus receptus he didn't call it that it was an advertising language uh, the received text uh and that came out you know right around the, the printing press and all those kinds of things so it, it was able to be disseminated and so uh Desiderius erasmus uh did textual criticism he compared and contrasted uh, manuscripts to produce this greek new testament and, and again, uh, I'm trying to think of my little man. He's working overtime right now. It's in, uh, I think it's in First John chapter 1, maybe. Can't remember at this second. It's the Kama Yohannim, and the Kama Yohannim is the part where it talks about there are three who give witness in heaven and three on earth, and it talks about the Father, Son, and the Spirit, which is a very distinctly Trinitarian passage, you know, unambiguous in the King James Version, Uh, and it's not in modern versions, or if it is, it's going to be in parentheses, or not uh, brackets, um, because again, the manuscript evidence is that that was something produced or at least came from a latin uh and put into uh greek cuz Desiderius Erasmus, Erasmus in his first uh his his first uh printing uh release of his greek new testament didn't have it in there because it was not in any of the manuscripts the greek manuscripts that he uh had examined and he got a lot of flack because that wasn't in there and uh, ultimately he said hey to those who are giving him flack if you can find a manuscript that has it in it then I'll put it in there so inevitably what happened is a manuscript was produced I think if my memory serves me correctly it was back translated from Latin into Greek uh, where that phrase was in the Latin it was back translated into Greek and that Greek manuscript was produced and Desiderius uh, Erasmus uh, you gave in to the criticism of it and he included it i think in subsequent uh, releases of his greek new testament and so that's just one case of where you know the pressures of uh, the people around him didn't like him even doing what he was doing um not to mention the king james uh translators they had to do textual criticism to an extent whenever they compared uh, the different um uh greek new testaments the different because it wasn't just desiderius erasmus you had scribner uh it came later i think uh and then you had uh uh, beza uh who who produced a greek new testament early on and so you had several of those floating around and then uh, they had to look at all the different uh other Bibles and versions that were out there. So they had to make choices and, and they, they make that known in their, in their translation of the New Testament. So uh, all that's to say is that the King James Version is a beautifully written, solid translation of the Bible that has some things that probably ought not be in it because of the limited evidence that they had at that time. And if the King James scholars were here today, the translators were here today, you can bet your bottom dollar they would be in examining the evidence that was out here today. And they would probably make some revisions uh, based on the evidence that they had set before them when they went to translate. Whereas, so you got the King James Version primarily based on what most people call the Textus Receptus but other translations other bibles because there were other english bibles during this time and they used those other english bibles the Geneva Bible the, the Tyndale Bible they used those other bibles also to help them in their in in their development of the King James Bible but to say that it is strictly based on the textus receptus especially the textus receptus that is used as the underlying text of the King James version today is not entirely true because ultimately what happened in uh with the king james Textus receptus that is used today again uh, scrivener who um back translated if you will the king james version so he took the english bible the king james bible and he translated it from english into greek so that the the textus receptus the greek new testament would read exactly how the english of the king james bible reads today and so, you know, you got to take all those things into consideration if you want to say that that is the only Bible we ought to read. Where well, there's just as much textual criticism that went on in developing it And if you really want to think about it, there's a little bit of manipulation that went on in developing it and portraying it as the one and only Bible that we ought to read, especially knowing that the Texas Receptus that people use as the backdrop of the King James Version today was one that was actually back translated from English into Greek rather than the other way around. So uh, anyway, all that said, I think we can trust what we got before us as what was written in the first century. Yep, we got a little more data than than uh, than was there in the first century, right? But we don't—we're not missing anything. It's there; all of it is there. We just got to sort through it and uh, continue to uh, refine what was closest to the originals. And then I wanted to end with this quote of—I talked about CBGM already. We won't rehash that. But uh, end with this quote uh, from Dr. Vodi Bacham, my favorite, absolute favorite preacher in all of uh, the world at this moment. Second, Stephen Lawson, if you just want to know. Uh, Dr. Bacham defines the reliability of the Bible from 2 Peter 1. Uh, excuse me, Dr. Bauckham. I don't know if I said Dr. Lawson or Dr. Bauckham, but it's Vody Bauckham. He, he divines it from 2 Peter 1, 16 through 21. He says, the Bible is a reliable collection of historical doc- documents written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. They report supernatural events that took place in the fulfillment of specific prophecies and claim that their writings are divine rather than human in origin and that's a good way to end this that that is that is why we can trust the scripture we have it's not made up it was written by witnesses. It was written by men who were inspired by God, who used their own language, who used their own abilities, and penned to these words as God and the Holy Spirit moved them along. And we have in our hands today what was written then? Yes, there's some of it that we still have to haggle over and still have to refine because we have so many, so much evidence. We have that hundred, we have that 1100 pieces of that thousand piece puzzle. And we continue, or when I say we scholars continue, uh, to examine and refine what it is that was closest to the originals. Leaving nothing out, anybody that wants to can go find all of the evidence that's out there. And with enough time and knowledge, you can make your own decision. Uh, in that regard and see whether the what these scholars are putting out is in fact accurate and or true all right hope that was beneficial i know i muddled it up a lot uh, and uh, sorry for that but hopefully you can take at least some of the things you heard there and it'll fortify your faith and belief that we have the word of god before us and not be caught off guard when other people try to attack uh god's word that you'll have some evidence and say hey you know, th- th- this is where you are not accurate. Uh, you're not telling the truth. Uh, you're not accurately representing the evidence. So, uh, hope you guys, uh, had a great day. Uh, had a, have a good week. Uh, got one more day of the work week and hope you have a blessed weekend and, uh, hope you'll spend some time, uh, this weekend celebrating moms, call your mom, uh, visit if you can, uh, go to church if you can with your mom and, uh, anyway, uh, just have a blessed and glorious weekend and until next time, may the Lord keep you and bless you and cause your face, his face to shine upon you.